0: This is a Village Soundcast Network original production.
1: It's so hard to have an idea. There's so much content creation that I think there's this idea that like it's really easy. To do. My dad dying was like a pretty big trauma. And it was followed by like a bunch of other ones that were pretty devastating. And honestly, I was kind of just trying to find a way to survive.
0: This is The Food Podcast, a Village Soundcast network production where personal
1: stories are shared through the lens of food. And it's kind of like the, the way being queer is, which I really love. Like there's as many ways of feeling it and being it as there are people, which is really great. And like, I don't know, it's what makes the world lovely. I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson.
0: When I was little, about four or five, I had three wishes. One, to eat 100 chocolate bars. Two, to turn into a boy. And three, to have a bicycle with curly handlebars. I've consumed hundreds, perhaps thousands, of chocolate bars since then. As for becoming a boy, my young mind thought boy meant permission to sit on my banana skateboard and coast down the smooth road leading straight into our driveway. It meant I could wear a chocolate brown velour tracksuit with matching beige hush puppies without criticism. It meant I could play outside with my imaginary friends, Rake and Wilmot John, while my sisters dressed and fed their dolls. Eventually I learned that I didn't have to become a boy to do these things. I could just be me. It took 46 years to realize the curly handlebar dream. It started with the pandemic, when life, along with my metabolism, ground to a halt. Blame it on the isolation baking, or the closed gyms and swimming pools, or the hundred chocolate bars I stockpiled along with flour and toilet paper. One day, while making donuts in a sweatsuit, the doorbell rang. It was my brother-in-law, glowing with endorphins. He had just bought a curly handlebar bicycle, the kind that would take him down fast roads or gravel-covered paths through the evergreens. He looked so happy. He looked like five-year-old me. So I bought a bike. I go out with my sister, my husband, and my brother-in-law, my bubble family. We find roads near the ocean and fly past wild roses and seagrass and just yesterday a garden with the biggest pumpkin I've ever seen. We climb hills and coast down the other side those curly handlebars solid in my hands and I wear a shirt with pockets in the back just the right size for chocolate bars. Today on the Food Podcast, I talk with Jennifer Elizabeth Crawford, a chef, food creative, and the host of My Queer Kitchen with Extra magazine. Jennifer, who identifies as they, has recently moved back to Nova Scotia from Toronto, where they studied political theory and worked as a policy analyst for over a decade. Toronto is also where they struggled with alcoholism and PTSD. It's where they became sober and where their culinary skills reached artistry levels. And it's where they won MasterChef Canada 2019. Today, Jennifer is back home in Nova Scotia, living in an old home in the valley, writing a memoir, filming recipe videos with her sweetheart, Logan, cooking with wild abandon, with dreams of opening a supper and sleep culinary outpost on their property. It's all about understanding that food can be a tool for learning and winning. Today, on the Food Podcast. Jennifer Crawford recently developed a milk and honey cheesecake to celebrate the Jewish holiday of Shabbat. The top of the cheesecake is coated with burnt honey nestled into honeycomb-like indentations. The recipe is now featured in their column for Extra Magazine, where they share the story behind this recipe. Sugar crisp cereal for the base, and bubble wrap to create the honeycomb. It's also Jennifer Crawford. Food that's full of innovation, nostalgia, color, and fun. But beneath it all, there's a story waiting to be told. So I thought it appropriate to begin this interview the way Krista Tippett, host of On Being, begins all her interviews with the question, what is your religious background? Their answer, much like their food, is filled with layers.
1: I am from Kingston, Nova Scotia. It's where I grew up. It's a village in the Annapolis Valley. My religious background was that I was raised Catholic. My mom taught Sunday school My grandmother, Lillian, she was amazing at the piano and organ, like she was the organist at their church in Cape Breton and then in Halifax. She was just so talented. It was something where there was a lot of ritual around it and a lot of things that I kind of felt like I had to do, but I didn't have what I would know now as faith. I felt a lot of fear (laughs) about all the stuff I wasn't supposed to be doing. It was so strange to
0: listen to their story at this time and in this way. We were the first to use the Village Sound Studios after the pandemic began, and protocol was firmly in place. We wore masks and sat on the other side of the booth from each other, microphones blocking whatever
1: was left to see of our faces. Jennifer wasn't fussed. The conversation flowed. I first went to university at St. Thomas in Fredericton, and I got kind of involved, like for me, in the parish community there. When I think back now, I'm like, wow, I went to Mass, like, every day after classes for a little while, before I realized, I don't know, it might have been years later that I realized, but I had such a crush on one of the girls who always went and was giving the Eucharist. And I just wanted to hang out with her, I think, but I didn't quite have the vocabulary or emotional literacy to understand what was happening there. Halfway through my third year at St. Thomas, my dad died really suddenly and really tragically. It was like a like lightning strike through a big oak tree you know like just no coming back from that and i like gave up on the idea of faith altogether cuz i i watched like i watched my mom and all her sisters praying i i like oh god i like i even prayed <laughs> my prayers back then were really like can i please have this like god please make this happen they were more like direct requests slash, like, demands. It was more like, um, I'll keep loving you if you do this for me. I was talking with my dad the other morning about these themes,
0: coincidentally. He was just out of the hospital and was full of the wisdom that comes from hours in a hospital bed, reading and reflecting on life. Reading is a coping mechanism, he says. On this reading list was a sermon he read by Samuel Wells, the vicar of St. Martin in the Fields, The main theme of the sermon was the idea of for versus with. How it's kinder to do something with someone rather than just for them. The same goes with God. We want God to do things for us, to stop pandemics or put out forest fires. But really, God is there to walk alongside, during the struggle, with us. The sermon referenced Michael Ondaatje's The English Patient, when Ray finds leaves Kristen Scott Thomas in a cave in the desert injured after a plane crash he wants to do something for her he wants to get help but if he'd only stayed with her she wouldn't have died alone i see how
1: jennifer was searching for the with in her life but instead the only thing i believed in for a really long time was my own self will and the soothing powers of alcohol. Because <laughs> like my dad dying was like a pretty big trauma. And it was followed by like a bunch of other ones that were pretty devastating. And honestly, I was kind of just trying to find a way to survive. Like my self will got me pretty far, but it is also the thing that drove me into the ground eventually. I just didn't know any better. And then it was kind of through healing and through finding like a recovery that I've now had... The opportunity to build some faith in in something outside of myself, and the idea of like faith and prayer now is is different than anything that I ever thought it would be. Part of that was learning about my own Jewish heritage. Like i I just learned about that. I guess, yeah, I think it might have actually been four years ago. Yeah, like four years ago, um, found out that my dad had been Jewish. Um, he was raised Jewish for most of his childhood. It's a really long story, but I never knew this about my dad. I never knew my grandfather, who was Jewish. I never got to, like, know him well enough to call him my Zadie or anything like that. It just felt like, uh, I don't know. I've been figuring out kind of, like, what my, like, Jewishness means to me kind of ever since. Like, mostly through food and learning about it and, like, connecting to these beautiful ghosts that I never got to meet.
0: How did you find out? Is it too much?
1: Yeah, I get a little choked up. I get a little choked up. Just, um, uh, uh, I feel like I don't think about it a lot just because it was such a, um, it wasn't a gentle revelation. It was a like, oh, whoa. My brother had been talking to my dad's, um, well, like our aunt, uh and we always knew dad had gone to like live with this other family when he was very young. But it was one of those things like we got that piece of the story and had it from the very start. So we didn't know to ask questions about it, kind of like we were kids and we were like, oh, yeah, of course you go live with this other family for a while. I don't know. But then like learned it was because, uh, yeah, he was actually being raised Jewish and was not living with his mom at the time. She just really wasn't capable of taking care of him. Again,
0: Jennifer is speaking from behind a mask. I'm in a mask, behind a microphone, and can barely see them. So I moved off the stool so I could see their eyes. All I really want to do is hug, not interrupt with questions. It was hard. Jennifer's Milk and Honey Cheesecake is now featured in their column in Extra Magazine. With it, their exploration of Judaism through food, and a piece of their father's early story. And in turn, a window into their own. They write, When I feel incompetent, I cook to prove that feeling wrong. We eat really well when I'm on a learning kick. Did dad find the same comfort in a pillowy challah? Did he ever grate his knuckles by accident when making latkes too? Or was it just his drunken stepdad who had bloody knuckles? How many Shabbat cheesecakes did he get to eat in his Jewish home before his Protestant mom decided she wanted him back? Did he yearn for brisket while obediently munching her ketchup sandwiches? What about the knuckle sandwiches fed to him by his stepdad? When he beat him so hard he lost his hearing on one side? Would matzo ball soup have been enough to soothe dad's pain? Will it soothe mine? When Jennifer first posted that honeycomb cheesecake, the bubble wrap innovation stopped my scrolling, but it was the caption that drew me in. Jennifer wrote... Observing Shabbat by reading the book of Ruth feels beyond precious. I don't know a lot about Shabbat yet, but in keeping with it, wow e, I I am excited to learn. Having the capacity to create food as a point of entry to learn moves me big time and nourishes every corner of my hungry little heart. Ruth is a story about a woman who marries into an Israelite family. She isn't Jewish, but she is welcomed in. But her husband dies, her husband's brother dies, and her father-in-law dies too. Eventually, it's just Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi, standing alone. Naomi tells Ruth to go back to her land, to her people, but Ruth refuses. Instead, she remains loyal to Naomi, famously saying, I will go where you go. The loyalty pays off. A landowner named Boaz allows Ruth to glean his fields, and she is rewarded with food. He notices her loyalty to Naomi and marries Ruth. It's a story about belonging, being welcomed into the Jewish faith. It's the perfect message for a person who sat with the knowledge that they were a quarter Jewish,
1: wondering. I spent a couple years with that information by myself, feeling like it wasn't enough. Like I didn't matter. it didn't count. and I was literally like alone in my apartment feeling sad, googling like a quarter Jewish on my dad's side. And without a word of a lie, this group came up based out of the JCC in Toronto, and it's called Jewish and. and it's like part Jewish, like a quarter Jewish on your dad's side. like stop quantifying your Jewishness. you count. It just felt so, well, beshert was the word that I learned right then, you know, like so destined and getting to connect with that community was so special and feeling welcomed and like there's no judgment or urgency or right way to do things. Like we each have our own past that we're kind of meandering and figuring it out as we go is, well, like another way of like unconditionally loving. (laughs) Meanwhile, Jennifer
0: was cooking a lot. They worked as a policy analyst by day in Toronto. Let me inject here that I have no idea what a policy analyst does beyond analyzing policies, but this effervescent person with a silver fanny pack around their waist and a slick of gorgeous bright blue eyeliner across their lids, I can't picture it. Anyway, Jennifer is an artist through and through, and these skills were honed in the kitchen during this time in Toronto, deep diving into various culinary phases. They went through an animal butchery phase, Pastry phase, shoe paste in particular. There was a meringue phase, a steak phase, and an aspic phase. Jennifer calls it achieving a trauma. Earlier this year, a CTV journalist quoted Jennifer saying, They weren't ready to discuss these details of their PTSD publicly. I didn't ask Jennifer to elaborate or to dive deeper into their father's own trauma, but they were willing to share their healing process. Jennifer's food and their glowing energy is and will be a lighthouse to many struggling. I'm sure of that. But to step back a bit,
1: before the healing came the rock bottom, a not-so-gentle one. Like, ran it into the ground aggressively, like a smashed egg on the floor, you know? Like, that's everywhere. Had I not found an opportunity to heal at that point, like, I don't know if I would have made it out at all. It almost feels like at that point, it wasn't like a, a choice. I just knew that I was, if I continued the way I was going, I definitely wasn't going to make it. And I was hurting myself and everyone around me. Um, and yeah, I was, I was desperate. I've never felt that kind of desperation. And it was terrible, but it's also what made me reach out for help. Help came in the form of seeking sobriety and
0: treatment for PTSD through the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Jennifer shares parts of this journey in a comfort foods piece they wrote for Extra magazine at the beginning of the pandemic. And true to form, what looks like a recipe for a big, comforting, cheesy carb is in fact a beautiful, reflective piece about finding comfort during the most difficult times. Jennifer writes, Before doing a treatment program for trauma at the CAMH in Toronto, I'd been all consumed with my symptoms of hypervigilance and perfectionism with survival. How do you build capacity for bearing the unbearable? I always thought that grit and resilience came from a gnashing of teeth, a bearing down and pushing forward, a no-days-off, all-caps exuberance with Rocky yelling in my face, keep moving forward, no matter how fatigued I felt. Turns out it was much, much softer than that. Thank Gaga, because I was exhausted. Then later, they write, where I thought fortitude came from applying myself to the wheels of the machine, grinding the grains of my humanity into flour to be sold for someone else's profit. I learned in that CAMH treatment program that it came instead from the permission to create measures of comfort, healing, and rest that was equal to the traumas I had experienced. I made a cake each day during my first month in recovery. Like the dozens of culinary ratios in my head, With enough repetition, the recipe for healing became second nature. It is, thankfully, something my body can do intuitively now, as easily as how my eyes simply know what a cup of flour looks like. Learning how to create comfort for myself became the one-to-one measure I live by. Jennifer says she only wished her dad could have had access
1: to the same treatment in his lifetime. He never got to know healing and... Kind of recovery from those things, which I, like I went through my own kind of grieving process about. Now that I've got to experience those things, and I wish I could share them with him because he was so effervescent. As it was, like if he had been set free from the secrets he had been carrying around his whole life, I can't, I can't even imagine the joy that he would have got to, got to have. I loved my dad so much. I just thought he was so cool, and he had so many passions and so many things that he was excited about like watching him get interested in something and then double down on it and then like go on to the next thing was always such a joy like for a while it was crib at the legion and then it was like smoking cuts of meat in the backyard and then it was trying to get our grass as perfect as the one at the golf course like there was always like a I don't know just watching him go deep on a topic was always really fun One of my first, most vivid memories about this stuff was when dad got some pumpkin seeds from the Howard Dill family. And all of a sudden, like we used to have like this pretty nice garden in the backyard and then it was just pumpkin city. Pumpkins only. All we talked about was pumpkins, watering the pumpkins, not watering the pumpkins too much, pruning the pumpkins, flipping the pumpkins so that they would grow evenly rubbing oils on them, I think, to make sure that they wouldn't crack. It was that whole summer. It went on for a few summers, actually, which was really cool. Um, And one of them, like, we ended up going to, well, we went to the Windsor Pumpkin Festival every year, but his pumpkin was 299 and a half pounds.
0: The winning pumpkin was 500 pounds, but that wasn't important. They got that pumpkin down the road without breaking it. It was a great day at the fair. It was a huge win. And I'd say it was a recipe for caring for something. Water it, roll it over, keep it moisturized, prune from time to time, make sure it doesn't crack. But it also sounds a little like Jennifer's pastry phase and the butchery phase and the cheese making phase.
1: This is another thing I totally got from my dad, but the tendency to achieve at your pain, to prove you're okay through success whether it's through like jobs or I don't know, growing a big ass pumpkin or like whatever it is, like having a project to prove your worth, to prove that you're capable, whatever it is that you're struggling with internally, like to then build all these evidences that you're not that. There was totally a part of that for my dad and definitely for me for my entire life. (laughs) Like until two years ago, basically, (laughs) like why else would you do things other than to prove that you weren't, I don't know oh, worthless, that sounds so awful, but that was really how bad I was feeling.
0: The bright side? Achieving at pain meant Jennifer honed some seriously incredible cooking skills. Skills they drew upon easily, naturally. As a contestant on MasterChef Canada in 2019, Jennifer was lauded the most creative chef in the show's six-year history. In the first episode, Jennifer made shrimp shell panna cotta in a crispy corn crust. They poached shrimp and cream, removed the flesh, toasted the shells in a pan, then steeped them in the poaching cream with dried shrimp and added gelatin to just set the panna cotta. Then they made a corn crust, filled it with those gently poached chunks of shrimp, and poured the panna cotta over top. They extracted intact corn from the cob, because in their words, they explode like pomegranate seeds when you take the time to individually remove them from the cob. An added lime crema, quick pickled jalapeno, a deep-fried shrimp shell, and some freshly popped popcorn. Needless to say, Jennifer went on to the next round. I'm so curious about their creative process and how their ideas are born, nurtured, and brought to life. Trusting the idea and
1: sticking with it until liftoff. That's the hardest part. It's so hard to have an idea. There's so much content creation that I think there's this idea that, like, it's really easy to just bang out a zillion recipes and have new ideas all the time. But, like, having a genuinely, like, you know, it kind of just came from in yourself somewhere idea is so precious. There's so many sediments on us. Of like everything we've ever tasted, everything we've ever seen about food, everything like we know things are supposed to taste like or look like or um, how they're supposed to be cooked. And it's like it's hard to forget those things. It's kind of like impossible in some ways. But I mean, I for me, it feels like my life's project to forget everything I'm supposed to know so I can get at whatever it is, like whatever like bit of knowing that I already have. Like if I can just access that a little bit Maybe not even every day, but access it as much as I can. And how do you access your inner self?
0: How do you find that unique being within when under pressure, say,
1: in the finals of MasterChef on national TV? I didn't know how to take care of myself emotionally super well until like the year before MasterChef when I like I got sober. I went to treatment for PTSD, which was amazing. Like access to treatment is so important for people. I never imagined that kind of healing would be possible for me. And I just want to work to make it possible for everyone. By the time I was at MasterChef, when they're like, you have 45 minutes go, I had practiced, I guess, like kind of knowing how to soothe myself in stressful situations. But then also, like, had been trying to strike through to those, like, what are my ideas even? <laughs> like, what? And I mean, like, all ideas are informed by. Like the idea of like authenticity, like I did this with no input from anyone ever. Like, I think that's pretty fake. Like, obviously I've been influenced by everything, but finding the bits that felt real to me under those constraints actually felt easier than if I had had like the luxury of days to come up with them. Um, Cause then you like overthink and so much of overthinking is talking yourself out of your good ideas. You know, I feel like I spent like almost 40 years doing that to myself. Like I would have an idea and then be like, oh, so-and-so already did that. Or that's actually too weird and no one would like it. Or that's too much work. Or I don't know, just like talking myself out of stuff that was, in retrospect, I'm like, that's brilliant. Why wouldn't you do that? In that situation, it made it a lot easier to access that. And it almost feels like when I have access to one of those weird little ideas now, it feels like an imperative version of self-care to create it, like to make it manifest in the world, because it's saying like... Like, yes, Jennifer, I believe in you and your weird ideas. Like, let's give this a shot. (laughs) You know, like, it's like a vote for yourself when you have an idea that you're not sure of, and then you just make it happen anyway. Today, despite the pandemic,
0: despite the dreams of opening a small restaurant in her home being put on hold, Jennifer is making space for these ideas to happen. And sometimes they come during their daily moments of self-care Like the time they came up with the idea to buy a vintage stove, one with a story, while they were meditating.
1: We have a beautiful stove. It was made for Eaton's back in the 40s. And we got it from Facebook Marketplace after I had had, like, basically a two-week meltdown looking at Pinterest, trying to figure out what kind of stove to get for this kitchen, Um, because we're renovating our kitchen and... If I'm totally honest, I have such designs on having like a show out of the kitchen and I wanted it to be perfect. So I was like looking at all of these kind of like celebrity chef kitchens and getting like looking at these ranges that were like, I would Google the range and it would be like $30,000. And I was like, that's what? (laughs) It's basically like the down payment we made on this house. Like I can't. Anyway, I, I got myself into this weird corner of like. I talked myself out of it because like I I wasn't able to do the things that it seemed like were necessary to make it happen. And I just remember like it, like I meditate every day and it was during one of those. It's always when like I'm not thinking that like the best things happen to me. It was so simple. Like you can do what you want. I think I like actually ejected from the meditation at that point and was like, okay, what do I want? <laughs> and like, like what feels valuable to me and why? And the things that feel most valuable to me are like stories. That's the stuff that really resonates with me and including like, you know, objects that have these like histories and stories and have lived all these lives like before us. Something about that is so Special, and also so special that we were able to get it for $50.
0: There's an image of this sparkling white vintage stove on Jennifer's Instagram feed. It's nestled into what looks like a bright 1950s kitchen. Not necessarily a madman kitchen, because this one feels loved. Tega might have something to do with that. She's Jennifer's golden retriever, who Jennifer wrote in the caption, Loves to peer through the crystal glass oven door. It's food TV. Jennifer talked about Tega that day in the studio, because Tega was a huge part of their journey towards unconditional loving. The other day I was driving on the highway, listening to Q on CBC radio. The host Tom Power was talking about the idea of unconditional love with his guest. And just as I crested a hill... Tom Power said he's not sure unconditional love exists.
1: Tom Power has clearly never had a dog. So, like, my point of entry was thinking about, like, what's the most unconditionally loving thing that I know? And it's without a doubt, like, my dog, Tega, um, who is a golden retriever. She's beautiful. Whenever I give her attention, like even the tiny, even if I glance in her direction, like she loses it, like wagging, like coming to comfort me if I need it, like whatever. She's always game to party. Like if I ask, if I look at her, I started thinking of my higher power as like, as that kind of energy, like big golden retriever energy in the sky, just like really rooting for me. Like, what would Tega want for me? If I glance in that direction, that energy and that comfort is there And, like, really eager to help, which kind of changed everything for me. It took, like, the better part of a year to get to a point where I believed it and wasn't just, like, playing make-believe in my head, kind of. But, like, when I saw it kind of play out in my life, it was really undeniable that it was a much nicer way to live. Shortly after we spoke, Jennifer shared online that Tega
0: had died. I know they're missing that beautiful big portal into self-love and acceptance, sitting in the kitchen, watching food through the oven door. But that higher power, that golden retriever energy is still in the sky rooting for us unconditionally. It's time. Jennifer's column in Extra magazine is called My Queer Kitchen. They've been asked in interviews a lot about queer food, what it is exactly. I wonder if queer food is the food that celebrates the policy analysts, the artists, the golden retrievers unconditionally. Is it food that celebrates those bold enough to believe in their weird ideas? I
1: feel like queer food is really different for All sorts of people, and it's kind of like the way being queer is, which I really love. Like, there's as many ways of feeling it and being it as there are people, which is really great. And like, I don't know, is what makes the world lovely for me. It's kind of that feeling of possibility, just forgetting all the stuff you're supposed to know because, like, it's just made up anyway. It comes back actually to that thing I was saying earlier. Like, what do you want? You can do what you want. Like, you can do what you like. Like, what is it? that you like kind of being in tune with your own stuff you might think the climax of this story happens in the spring
0: of 2019 when master chef season six aired in canada that was when jennifer buoyed by hours of self-care golden retriever energy and years of practice in the kitchen tapped into their best weirdest ideas and did what they liked week after week Until the grand finale, when 12 contestants had become only two. On that final night, Jennifer made three dishes layered with stories. Their appetizer was ants on a log, made from celery brunoise, blue cheese mousse, and port-poached figs. For a main dish, they served Mary's Little Lamb, braised lamb shanks, hay-smoked oats, and mint floss— Yes, they made mint cotton candy by crushing those mints your grandmother served. And for dessert, treat cereal puffed rice chocolate crumble, pink meringue marshmallows, a brûléed sugar cured egg yolk, and steaming tea smoked milk. The judges loved it all, especially the dessert. All these treat cereals that I missed as a kid. The ones I crave, I recognize it all here. So my dream has come true, but in a sophisticated adult way. Thank you, chef. This dessert is absolute creativity. It's somebody who's really mastered technique, flavor. You can't teach this. This is one of the most original desserts I've ever had. And then Jennifer stood on the Master Chef stage head resting on their opponent andre's shoulder and waited for the verdict this year's winner and canada's new master chef is jennifer I was a blubbering mess.
1: I finally figured out what I want to be when I grow up, or like not totally grow up, but you know, I figured out what I want to do. Anyway,
0: <laughs> this could be the climax of the story, but Jennifer says the climax happened long before, when they reached out for help. So that makes sense when you walked on the stage at MasterChef and you had already won.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it felt like the, like we're going to the pumpkin contest like here's my meager offering let's see what happens like just can't even believe I get to be here
0: (laughs) this episode is dedicated to Tega the giver of unconditional golden retriever energy thanks to Jennifer Crawford who I really hope is up for another conversation with me a part two because we barely scratch the surface, Jennifer can be found on Instagram at jennifer.e.crawford or at jenniferecrawford.com. And to Luke Battio for always stitching everything together beautifully. And thanks to Jen Grant for our theme song, and a special thanks to Jen for use of her song "Heart of Sticks" in this episode. You can find me on Instagram at Lindsay Cameron Wilson or at the Food Podcast or at lindseycameronwilson.ca. Thanks for listening. I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson. But before you go, here's a P.S. I often ask guests what their idea of home is, a notion I'm always exploring. So before Jennifer left the studio, I asked them what their idea of home is now that they're back in their home province. Jennifer surprised me. After a lifetime of searching for home, through sports, alcohol, achieving, and anxiety. They said they found home in
1: themselves. And to feel at home in this, like, beautifully strange meat machine where I get to live, like, until I'm not living anymore, that felt, that felt like home. I didn't know what was going to come out when I started talking. (laughs) Sometimes it's like, uh, big golden retriever energy like take the wheel like i wonder what i'm gonna say here and i'm like oh that is true like that is real
0: (laughs) this was a village soundcast network original production